exactly, Gui Chi Chi. I'm so popular.、Uh, last week was my seven-hour monstrous odyssey through the streets of Tokyo, discussing perfume and the Comme des Garcons fragrance, Sugi.、Uh, I have a really exciting episode today. I think for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some John Waters movies.、Uh, today being polyester paired with the fabulous Harvey Fierstein、uh, feature and its source adaptation.、Uh, Torch Song trilogy, and I have a guest. I'm literally dying to have on. Who are you? Hi, it's Paul Cupo. Act bad. Hey, what are you doing, Paul Cupo? Act bad. Um, I am just getting off of watching、um, Drag Race UK versus the World, and <laughs> now I'm here. But I've been doing two days of prep for both of these movies, and I'm extremely prepared to come out with like. The like trivia, like backstory answers. Love. I love it. I'm、okay. so excited. These movies are like super formative for me, and I have been dying to talk about polyester for actually like two years of the show now. I've been dreaming of it since I、uh, rewatched it a long time ago. But my last question is, why do you follow me, Paul Cupo? I follow you. Because I think you're part of the pre-quarantine hot gay podcast boom. <laughs> That's why I follow you. I started it during the quarantine. Oh, you weren't like right before the quarantine? No, thought topics started right before, but I was about three months in when I started it. Okay, so it was so it was like qu- early quarantine. It was like everyone was sitting at home. We were all podcasting,、mm-hmm. and there really was not gay voices. Which I mean, I'm always more、um, drawn to the gay voice over the straight voice, and you were one of them. And you were、um, your online persona was you in drag, and you were sort of like this like. You know, like Dasha, Japanese <laughs> Dasha monster. So that's why I followed you. And then I, I dropped my bottle. Hold on, when <laughs> I had to pick that up. Um, yeah, you were like this, like da- Japanese Dasha monster, and you lived in Japan. Oh, that was another reason why. That was why I stayed. <laughs> I followed you for, came for the Dasha I, monster and stayed and for the、I、Japan because you were in Japan. Oh God, I love it. I like.、Uh, I love getting compared to Dasha, of course.、Um, but I have to say, your podcasting efforts are some of the most compelling ever recorded. I've listened to the entirety of Not Really two times, every、mm-hmm. episode in order. I'm obsessed, and your new project is bold and thrilling. And rare, and, and rare. not enough, <laughs> not enough episodes. But I actually, I really、um, commend anyone who's bold enough and、uh, so confident and charismatic to carry a show on their own shoulders with no help.、Uh, your aesthetic inclinations on the show are fascinating, like the stock music that creates some of the. <laughs> yeah. There's one wonderful episode where you're like going off about the trans teacher with huge tits, and it has horror movie music behind it. Movie,、yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. A lot of that, a lot of that was actually like some happy mis ha- happy coincidences、mm-hmm. with the, with the timing that I just increased the volume because usually what I do is I'll I'll listen with the music, but I won't have it recorded in because I edit my podcast because I say um um and I'll have like these <laughs> pauses. So I try to condense it 
And then I just throw the track over in the end, like whatever I was listening to. So it matches sort of the intensity. Yeah. And it was syncing up at just the right points in there. And I, I, I know that my listeners get very mad at me because I like podcasts and then I'll like literally just like disappear for a month. I'm like, won't do an episode, but more episodes are coming. And I'm, I need to figure out, listen, I need to, cause coming back to podcasting, I mm -hmm. already decided that I, I didn't want to rely on guests as much and needing that like second person. And, you know, I, I, I wanted to do something on my own and, I know you do this every week, but to me, it takes a lot out of me to do it alone. And it takes a lot out of me. And then I I sort of feel like as soon as I am done with an episode, I'm like, <gasps> okay. Oh, I yeah. need to like generate. I need to recharge. And I don't think that I can be a show that has, you know, hard hitting opinions about everything on a weekly basis. I just don't think that's my kind of show so this week i'm going to do a, like a big thanksgiving episode and then i'm going to do like 20 movie reviews and i think that maybe i'm like a seasonal thing until i could figure i need to figure out my groove basically oh yeah know? no but i mean what we do get is so fabulous i'm happy to wait i'm i'm getting like blue balls by you but it's it's all worth it like and uh i think one of the things that always attracted me to uh not really and your podcasting persona is that you have such an old school, and I mean this in the best way possible, like you yeah. have like the old school, like gay nerve and like the wit and the cultural references that have been so raked and depleted. And like, I, I really can't tolerate. Oh, I, like, can't even, I can't even say these. I can't even say the words that <laughs> I can't even say those words anymore because they, they've been like, like demolished and ruined and ran over on like you know, by like straight girls and like, oh, it's horrible, really, really bad faggots. Like yeah. the worst of the worst faggots are now talking like that. But yeah, I have this like sort of old school. I'm a very old school person, which is why like, you know, today we're gonna be talking about like polyester and torch song trilogy. And like, to me, to me, it's like when you asked to, to if, if I wanted to come on to talk about torch song trilogy, trilogy, I was like, wait, how do you know that's my favorite movie? How do you know that that's like one of the most formative movies of my youth that where I like saw, I like saw in Harvey Fire scene, I saw something that I had never seen before. It wasn't a RuPaul and it mm -hmm. wasn't like, um, you know, Philadelphia. It was like a fat gay with like a <laughs> voice that was like, you know, on par with like the nanny, but it was like, Gay and rats me like I was like oh like that's my mother who yeah who is this who is this person that this is my mother and then uh I had, I had seen Torch Song Trilogy and I was like oh my god this is why I get mad I mean we can talk about this later but this is why I get mad at somebody like a like a like a Billy Eichner and a, and a bros and a spiel it's like bitch mm -hmm. we had a romantic comedy starring all gay people we had it it was called Torch Song Trilogy Yep, that's exactly right. I was thinking a little bit about like bros and, and what have you as well. But like, just generally, um, the faggot experience has gotten more depressing with each year. And I become like more of a manic, like homosexual supremacist with each passing moment. Like, I have deluded myself into thinking that gay men are the only people who have anything like, worthwhile to say like that and like the most like shocking and debased of trans women. But when I was like going through my um homosexual self-education my first year of college where I'm like I'm going to read 
every gay book ever published. Mm-hmm. I'm going to watch every gay movie because this is my narrative. Like, this is my story. And actually doing it was the most productive choice I've ever made for my life. Because, because we told good stories. We did. There's like so much emotional, like nuclear art from the 90s, 80s and 70s that feels so unique and special. And um, I just get upset all the time because just outside of podcasting, the gay men are failing at cr- like creating beautiful I mean, art I about think themselves. That, I think that you're a very interesting, rare, and unique young gay person where you have this urge to oh my God, like, say more. seek out. You you were like, I'm going to seek out like these gay history, these gay historic moments in media and pop culture and movies and TV shows and music. I went on a very similar journey. I'm much older than you, but I also went on this journey, but I didn't have the internet at the time. Mm -hmm. So even preparing for this, I was like trying to figure out when did I see Polyester for the first time? When did I see Torch Song Trilogy for the first time? And I think that I come from a generation that is the video store generation. This is the generation where we, if you were lucky enough to live in a town where you had a local video store, I'm not talking about a chain or a blockbuster or a Hollywood video, but it needed to be a local video store. And the people working there needed to come from a queer experience or punk or new wave, mm-hmm. or we, or they were just weird. And there was a section in these video stores that would either be called cult or midnight <laughs> movie. And in that one section of 40 movies in cult or midnight movies, whatever it was called, that's where you would find your trauma movies. That's where you would find your gay interest, uh, Kiss Me Guidos, your Lonely Hearts Club. That's where you would find your John Waters movies. Mm-hmm. That's where you would find your like uh, exploitation movies like you know, Beyond Valley of the Dolls or um, um, uh, uh why am I Foxy Browns? Mm-hmm. You know that they were all. It was like black exploitation, gay gay love stories, B horror, like trauma. They yeah, were yeah, all yeah. In one section in like the in like the video store. And if you were a good, curious young gay like me, you basically started at the top, and every day you would just rent. You would go, and that's where you would find your interests and your what path and direction and you know you would read interviews you would try to find interviews with these people at the library and like magazines and see like what they would talk about like there was no internet you know like Mm -hmm. i didn't i didn't have the internet to like seek out these things i had barnes and nobles you know i'm i feel quite fortunate i think one of the reasons that i did become kind of the person i am is growing up in like rural oregon everything was about 10 years behind the rest of the country so right. we didn't get dial up until I was like 13. And we had a DVD rental store in Sisters, Oregon called Sunbuster Video, uh, run by a hippie, like new age cult, like cult lady with scary, like frizzy hair named Peggy. And uh, me and her. my dad would go there and Peggy would frown at all this stuff my father <laughs> allowed me to rent and like have a word with him after about the, <laughs> <laughs> about the videos. We I was had a father out. that like supported your... Um curiosities and well when, my like, dad is like i, I want to say this respectfully my dad is like mentally broken from working on a fishing vessel in alaska for like 15 years of his life where he would uh-huh. do like hardcore machinery operation for like 13 hours a day and then what do they do when they go back into their room 
they put on a VHS tape and his brain got so used to those rhythms that like uh-huh. he has to have a movie on at all times of the day. He has to have something playing. So like when we were like eight years old, he'd be back from the boat and he'd be like schizophrenic at like two o'clock. Like, we're watching aliens yeah. now. <laughs> so I can relate. I could definitely relate to your father. I know. A lot of people like a lot of people go like as soon as they get home. I was just talking to my friend Zach, actually, a different Zach about this, mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, Zach and Patrick, my, my friend Zach and Patrick, they their default when they walk in their house is like they turn on their music or my default is I turn on my TV yeah. and like press play. And then I like, you know, undress and like go make food. But there's like I always I feel like I always have to have something playing in the background and like the fam- the more familiar, the better. So like. Uh, yeah, like much like your dad, I'm sure he's, you know, he's seen aliens like 40 times because oh, yeah. it's like that's his comfort space. You know, I feel like that's how I am with with my with my the media that I fall in love with. My father has seen the most movies out of, I think, anyone I've ever met in my entire life. And he's seen so many that he doesn't even remember what he's seen. And then like it'll be like two seconds before the end roll. And he'll be oh. I've seen this a few times before. <laughs> Your dad sounds cool, to be honest. He sounds really like a He's cool a guy. character. You should you should hang out with him. Come to Sisters. We'll get a drink. I'd love to. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so we're talking about these two um like DVD store rental B movie trash flicks that are also uh, deeply representative of the soul. These both to me have like the texture of gay life made as most glistening and powerful as possible. Um, but I think I was first exposed to Torch Song Trilogy during that initial education period of myself where um, I was preparing to write my undergraduate thesis about gay literature before and after HIV AIDS. And I discovered, I was like, I'm going to write about Torch Song Trilogy. It ended up not making it into the thesis, but I was ripped apart brutalized and seduced by this very like polemic beautifully written play and uh, that has no mention of aids in it not once it has not nothing one time yeah yeah and i thought it was such a fantasia i wanted to live in this world i like started like idolizing harvey so much and became he purposely with him. did he purposely said it in you know w- the, the the play was a thing in the 80s and then the movie didn't get made to like 1988, which is after the, the AIDS epidemic had wiped out, you know, most of his friends, most of the gay creatives in New York and everywhere else. So when he actually made the movie in 1988, he set the time back. So the movie ends in 1982. And so he didn't have to deal with any of the AIDS crisis because mm-hmm. he had written a story that had nothing to do with AIDS. And now everyone is in this AIDS mindset. And actually that's why a lot of reviewers and the gay audience face a lot of backlash when the movie came out because there was no AIDS in it. And people were mad that there wasn't AIDS about it because you know the big trend was making, he calls it something very specific in his book. Also, if you want further reading on Harvey Firestein, he just put out a memoir called, I Was Better Last Night. It's fabulous. I- it's fabulous. I mean, the parallels between me and Harvey Firestein are kind of incredible. We're both born in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And his zone school is a school called Lafayette, which is where Jeffrey Epstein went and my father. And that's also my zone school. And we both 
left our neighborhoods and went to the High School of Art and Design in Manhattan. So we both are from the same neighborhood. We went to the same high school. Uh, he went to the, uh, he went to High School of Art and Design in 1965, where in his book he says they had a smoking terrace for <sighs> students. Oh, my heaven Can on you earth. Imagine anything more glamorous than a smoking, smoking terrace. terrace for yes. high school students in 1965, <laughs> where coincidentally he also met Amy Heckerling there, uh-huh. uh, director of uh, Clueless and many others. He had met Amy Heckerling there because they, they went to the same high school and on the smoking lounge. So that's major <laughs> incredible i can totally imagine like clueless and torch song trilogy coming out of like the same mindset because uh they're both like these uh enormous like washed out bright white pink fantasias of a uh, lifestyle that can no longer exist um and and she was option amy was option to direct torch song trilogy uh, but harvey firestein was afraid that she would uh not uh hold him to the what is it hold him to the fire enough because mm -hmm. uh they were friends for so long so he needed a director that would like really like give it to him instead of like amy heckerling but it it, it would have been very interesting to see amy heckerling's take oh. on this movie too i can't even imagine the product that we have now the director's name is bob something or other right? no, it's paul something paul something it's it's Paul Simon. Let me pull up the director really quick. Yeah, let me look it up. He's basically like a nothing director. Is a Paul far... Bogart. Oh, okay. Who is he? So let's see. Let's let's see what else Paul Bogart did. He looks like the cunts. Oh, he directed Golden Girls, All in the Family. Oh, baby, he is. He's the cunts. You know he is. This is wild. Archie Bunker. He's cool. Okay, so for the listeners that don't know, Torchong Trilogy is based on a play that Harvey Firestein wrote um, when he... So Harvey Firestein left high school and auditioned. He decided he wanted to be an actor. So he went and auditioned for Andy Warhol for a play called Poor in like 19... In the early 1970s, he got this play and it was at a theater called La Mama Theater in New York. And he became part of this like playwright company where he met the owners of the uh, of the thing and all of, like his like acting peers at a very young age. And he wrote, he, he was trying to pitch a play to the owner of that theater, um, Ellen Stewart of a play he was doing called International Stud. And he, the only way she would do the play was if he, he said, oh, by the way, it's a trilogy. And that like dollar signs flashing, okay, we can do three plays and we have three pieces of pro programming. But he only wrote one of them so far and it was called International Stud. It should also be noted that Ellen Stewart, the owner of La Mama Theater, was a designer at Saks and Bergdorf Goodman and she invented the Moo Moo. Oh. Not the moo-moo. The moo-moo. <laughs> so he wrote this one, this first play called International Stud, which was about him um, as a drag queen meeting, um, you know, it's, they, there used to be a term for this sort of guy in the 70s, 80s called, like, they were, like, in for the night. They were, like, yeah. gay for the night, but. You know, they like lived a heterosexual life. They probably had wives and kids, but they were like in for the night. So he wrote 
this first thing called International Stud because I believe that was the name of the bar. It was the name of the of the actual bar that existed. In and New it was York. I think it was based on a real experience where he met this guy and then the, you know the guy couldn't be with him because the guy <laughs> was straight. And then um, this the next play he writes was called Fugin in Nursery, which was like a part two to it, and that was about him meeting a new a new guy that was much younger, and then the guy that left him with his girlfriend. And that play was set in bed where the entire play was set where all four of them were in bed on this weekend together where they both meet their new partners. Right. And then the last play was called Widows and Children First. And that was about the the main character, Harvey. I mean, uh, his name is Arnold in the play, but it's played by Harvey Firestein, where his lover dies. And he has to bury him and also his father dies. So his mother comes and his mother comes to visit and it's sort of their, I don't want to say acceptance. It's the mother's- It's a reconciliation. The reconciliation, but she still does not accept him, but they sort of, it's a fight. It's a a really long fight between a mother and child about who, whose loss is more valid. Right. It, it follows some, actually funny enough, it follows like a traditional like Japanese uh, dramatic format, oh. which I believe is a johaku or something. And uh, the first one is like the beginning. Um, the second is the like uh, conflict. And then the third is the quickening. So it's like about like these like three wow. different stages of um, drama. And like the third segment of this is 100% like the quickening, the breakage. It's like the uh, like God, it, it's like literally a fight scene sustained for an entire play, and it is brutal. It's brutal. It, it is. Brutal. is. And, and when I was I, when I was watching, uh, I watched the 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 commentary of it last night, and he was talking because it's played by in the movie is played by Anne Bancroft, mm-hmm. with um, uh, Mel Brooks's wife, and in the play it was played by Estelle Getty, who is actually. A cell Getty from the Golden Girls. She was just a housewife in Queens who would go see these plays at La Mama Theater. And then she said to she said to Harvey Firestein, she's like, I'm just such a fan of your work. If you ever write something, write a mother. And he did. And he and he hired Estelle Getty. It was like her first acting role. And she went on to obviously be, you know, the most legendary sitcom actress in history with the oh, Golden yeah. Girls. But this is you know, Harvey Firestein basically discovered her. Anyway, wait, was I on? I was I on a point? Oh, you know, you just explained her. But it was very, it was, it was very hard for Anne Bancroft and Harvey Firestein to film these scenes in the end of the movie because it's both they're both very intense. They're both very intense to each other, and it sounds like it sounds like Harvey. What's what's the method of acting where it's like, like method like, acting? It was like very method where like that those confrontations would really affect both uh-huh. actors and they would need like time and like days off before filming more because they like they they needed it was like a, having a nervous breakdown every day at work, which I thought was really um beautiful. Like yeah. Thank you. Thank you for Thank doing you. that, like, my viewing. Like, I mean, it's hard to watch, too. I mean, I, I can imagine for a heterosexual viewer, it might 
like float away. And one of the qualities of the movie is that it's like very truncated from the play. Like the original play runs like four hours yeah. if you watch all yeah. three pieces. And uh, the film is under two. So the film is exactly two. Yeah, it's like one fifty four. Blue Line said you need to do it exactly two. So he he they edited apparently at it exactly two. And if New Line were to put their logo in the beginning, it would go over two hours. <laughs> and it's like because of that truncated quality where they're like editing and you know clipping, it actually works, I think, in the benefit of the film because it doesn't feel like a movie. It's very dreamlike. Things are constantly happening and uh, drifting between time periods. So it creates like this uh, loose, like collage. Yeah, Yeah, it it also makes it fast paced. And then when you're done with it, you're like, how long was that? Because we had multiple decades in that movie. Mm -hmm. And the movie flashes by in an instant. I've watched it like three or four times now. And every time I watch it, it just is like, done as soon as you press play it's amazing and that last sequence of them fighting is uh not when your little friends here on all like she's so <laughs> good as this like fighting jewish mother you know like i mean we were talking and, a little oh, bit on he the adopts, he adopts a child so mm-hmm. in, in the last sequence his his lover dies and he decides and this isn't you know this is in 1981 he decides he's going to adopt a child when gay people didn't adopt weren't allowed to adopt and he adopts this child that's also a, like a gay teenager he adopts this kid who's like a, a, a gay teenager yeah. and that kid, i mean that kid also was like the hottest he's so hot i was waiting to say he's so i mean hot. i can say it because i watched this movie as a child i remember thinking there's gay kids that look like this jasmine is amazing what? gay kids <laughs> I can't There's imagine that are not amazing. They're not Desmond is amazing. No, he's like so stunning. Um, and that's like where like the Fantasia like element, like this a pastoralist gay image comes in because um, of course, like they're gonna be able to adopt a child in like 1981 gay America. Never would happen in real life, but it happens so beautifully and convincingly here because this is a movie about love. This is a movie about love. This is a movie about gay love. And actually, Matthew Broderick, this is Matthew Broderick's first role. And he was the gay son in the Broadway play. Oh, really? Years later, he grew up and he was the lover in in the so so Harvey Feierstein had to like flip this, flip this switch in his head. And I mean, he did say that when they were filming with Matthew Broderick as an adult, everyone was in love with him. Like during the filming, it was like- I mean, he's gorgeous too, isn't he? Remember, like so beautiful, like he has that like Matt Dillon thing, you know, like mm-hmm. that like sort of pouty lift that goes mm-hmm. up. He was just, I mean, he's so beautiful. <laughs> and he actually met Sarah Jessica Parker on when he was doing Torch Song, the play. They met when they were that young. That's amazing. That's I- I had never like viewed Matthew Broderick as like beautiful or appealing because like uh, I always go back to thinking about him in election. Right. I mean, hot. <laughs> oh, I mean, I kind of actually agree though. Like him hot. being like scuzzy, like, like it's scuzzy. It's hot. Right. You're right. Actually, he's hot in like a Kevin Spacey American Beauty way, where it's oh, like, oh my god, I never thought of it that way. Not. You're so right. Sure. <laughs> Let's do it, you disgusting old fuck. 
Oh God. But he's like so cherubic and like Grecian and like sculpture like and um he plays the part of like the destined lover. And like you mentioned that the second uh part of the play takes place all in bed and in the film. Um my God, this is like the best like answer to like the nasty gay inclinations I've ever seen on film because like I constantly am like being ripped apart like by my desires to like be an explosive feel everything at once like I'm dying Laura Palmer on the dance floor like <laughs> I feel that but I also like I want to love like I want to be loved and like I everyone mean, I, who writes about that yeah, is horrible. I want to love and I I want a relationship like they have like yeah. I'll never be in a relationship because I have to be in a monogamous relationship if I'm uh-huh. gonna be in a relationship it has to be monogamous and if I'm not gonna be in a monogamous relationship I will not be in a relationship which is why I'm not in a relationship but <laughs> That's a whole other story. But, you know, this is, in this movie, it's a gay love story. And he is with Matthew Broderick. They get together in a very... Okay, so in the movie, I think maybe we should say what the movie is about. So Arnold... <laughs> That's a good is, idea. <laughs> Arnold um, is is the, the, the lead character in the movie, and he plays a drag queen called um, Virginia Ham, I think. Is yeah, the Virginia Ham is correct. He plays Virginia Ham, who is a a, a, a showgirl, and this is this is a time before lip syncing, where like all the drag performers they sing, sing. songs, they sing so the torch songs. He sings these incredible songs in the movie, and in and in, in the first act of the movie, it's still like the original plays. It's separated into into three sections. The first section is where he meets he meets uh, this lover who ultimately decides he is straight and then in the second act um he meets his new lover played by matthew broderick and is much younger and they take a weekend trip to visit his old lover and 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 the girlfriend and then spoiler alert um once they move into an apartment together and they're like extremely settled and it's not set it's secure they're, they're domestic right once they get fully secure in their love uh this horrible thing happens where um he was gay bashed in the street and murdered and it was you know filmed on houston street and like houston street and i think like sixth avenue in manhattan mm-hmm. and funny enough Somebody was murdered, a gay person was murdered one week earlier in the exact location they were filming. No. Yeah. And the gang that murdered that person was watching them film <gasps> this new scene. And it got so intense once once he fe- once Harvey Firestein found this fact out. You know, I mean, the scene is is very intense. It's very dramatic. Matthew Broderick gets gets murdered in the street, and he had to stop filming and film the next day again. He needs to bring back everyone because he he literally had to stop filming because it was too intense. I mean, so it's he, impossible like, for gay people these days to realize that like that happened. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Everyone's like, gay men. I've been talking about this for fucking two years on my show, but like, young gay men are like very inclined towards like ironic homophobia like they think it's like funny i've never yeah. laughed about any of this maybe it's because like growing up like somewhere rural where like i they did get beat up and stuff like it's not like this used to happen all the time like, this used to happen all the time but it also like 
it, it's not that it used to happen all the time. Like, I don't think I'm that old. Like this happened no. when I was in high school. Like it fortunately never happened to me because I wasn't a flower. I wasn't a beautiful, delicate. Oh, flower. I was I was a daisy. I was like a brashy, <laughs> like, you know, uh-huh. gay thug, you know, like it never happened, but it happened to, you know, people around me. And I would I obviously it was it was not OK. And I've seen it. I mean, it also happens to me like I'll still walk down the street sometimes. I mean, it hasn't happened in a while. And I'll just hear like faggot, like in a car just zooming by. And you're just like, oh, my God, like, how do they it, know? <laughs> it feel, I mean, it feels bad. Homopho- homophobia feels bad. And um I'm not sure where it exists and where it doesn't, but well, I, do I feel think- like what happens is that like, because zoomers, which I guess I'm technically a part of whatever, like, but they, zoomer? what run is that? I feel like, how old are you? I'm 26 years old, but I didn't have okay. internet. So I consider myself to be a millennial. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. So, but the thing is, is that like zoomers, I'm like tw- I'm 12 years older than you. Oh, that's nothing. It's not even as old as my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> it's <Sorry>. like, <laughs> I like, I feel like Zoomers, like, they have this great homosexual pain in their spirit. Like, the we all do. It's, like, the the longing and the unrequited terror and the who am I that happens to everyone. But uh, they can't, like, filter that out into their right. lives in a healthy way. And so what they end up doing is just, like, pretending to be homophobic and, like, making a joke out of it. But it's right. just, like, a little ironic layer. I mean- yeah, I I mean I I I do see that. I see that especially in a lot of the people on Twitter where mm-hmm. you know, they use like faggot and I and an ironic way. I use faggot in a very real way, but you know, people be like, I'm just a re- I mean, what do I know? I'm just a retarded, retarded faggot. faggot. Yeah. And you're just like, girl, you don't even know. Like, you don't even know the layers of that. Like, and it's but I also had no faith in your generation because I was mm-hmm. afraid that your generation was the glee generation. And I was it afraid is. that your representation that thank God I'm 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 listening to you and 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 all your interests and all your curiosities and all your episodes, you have a, a, like interests beyond the false the false confidence that Glee and Chris Coffer provided for people. Cause I was afraid that that's what people thought of. That's what people thought was, it was going to be like growing up. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I gotta say, I, I, one of my best friends, she's a school teacher and me and her were in the trenches as kids. And we were like in the trenches of being alternative and queer and bullied, but also the bullies because we were also oh, very, yeah and we were like you know like punk so it's like she she tells me about what happens in schools and like there is no homophobia <laughs> <laughs> there's no bully i'm like no one's bullied like what like and then i'm afraid that like if you're not i'm, I'm afraid that like i'm only cool because i was bullied but maybe that's stockholm syndrome no no i think it's true i feel like you have to go through like some like trial of the soul. Like when you're developing, like you have to like go through the right? fire and okay. brimstone so you yeah. can be stronger. Like I 100% am a better person because I was bullied. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. I, I mean, I agree. It made me tough as a rock and fight for everything I have. But I mean, growing up in New York is a little bit different because mm-hmm. Once you get out of the, once you get out of the, 
you know, I also feel like Harvey Firestein, we can learn something from Harvey Firestein as well. Harvey Firestein, like myself, we got out of our small town neighborhood and we were like, for high school, I need to get out of this neighborhood. People live and die in, in these three blocks. I need to go to the city. And he, you know, at 16, he's mm. like, I'm going to go audition for Andy Warhol. He knew that there was more outside of the four walls of Brooklyn. And he he sought out this, um, I mean, what I imagine to be like, you know, probably the most exciting and creative time anywhere in the world. Like, mm. The clouds know me. Like, that is like the most exciting time for art and culture and everyone making it up as it goes along. And of course, there's peaks and valleys and, and this comes and goes. But, you know, Harvey Firestein sought this out. And, you know, when he talks about his successes and, you know, his movie successes, his writing successes, he also has other successes, like he wrote La Caja Fall, which is uh, the precursor to The Birdcage. Mm. Um also, you know, he he wrote that play. He 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 um he transferred the that from the French film to this Broadway play, and then Mike Nichols bought the movie rights and made the Birdcage, mm. even though, even though the, it was offered to Harvey Firestein, and he didn't buy the movie rights because he's like, ah, he's like, nah, we're not gonna make a movie out of that. And hello, the Birdcage was made, which, by the way, one of the best movies. Ever made. It's so classic. It is. I mean, the performance by Nathan Lane and Robin Williams is like nothing even comes close to that. But, you know, Harvey Firestein seems like, much like myself, pretty content with the amount of success and not, (laughs) it's not that we're not like reaching higher, but there's a point where it's like, (laughs) I'm pretty happy. Like, actually, I'm. I'm kind of good. Yeah. He still has like Ginger Minj like singing him his like celebratory song at the Glad stage. Like he didn't get (laughs) that big, you know. But for me, he's like cosmic god because this world that he creates in Torch Song Trilogy is a world where you can be the most nasty homosexual in the back room, getting hand jobs, being a slut. You can deal with all of the nasty impulses you have and then you can forgive yourself and you can forgive your uh-huh. boyfriend and you and can you could s- not be the most attractive person at the bar and still god get it. that was so real to me because like when you for, when you watch the first scene when he's at the bar after he's done his uh big night in drag he uh-huh. still has makeup splotches all over uh-huh. you know he's not the hottest guy there by any stretch of the imagination but he still pulls the hottest trades yeah because you know what charisma Charisma. And that's something also to all of your to all of your young gay listeners. Listen, what I've learned in my old age is that no matter what you look like, you can get any man you want at any time you want it. And it doesn't it doesn't matter. That's one of that's there's one of my gems. There's one of my gems to the audience. But Harvey Firestein, he lost, you know you know, 50 pounds, he he starves himself for a year on Diet Coke and salad to prepare for this movie role. God, he looks and, amazing. And he he waxed his entire body. He got a staff infection, <laughs> waxing his entire body when he made this movie. And he still got called fat in reviews. Oh my God. 
So, I mean, you know, you, you just can't win. When you're a creative, smart homosexual, you're a life of judgment. Uh, truer words have quite literally <laughs> never been said out loud before. I just like, I am so obsessed with this idea that is completely right. That is like, if you are a little Miss Charisma and you are fascinating and you have a developed inner world, nothing matters about like the sex and stuff because you win like you're gonna you're gonna make it work but everyone just wants to always be like there's such a fucking epidemic of like sad gay guys you're like oh chad won't fuck me i'm like it's because you're whining all the time (laughs) stop whining (laughs) shut up thank god i've 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 gone past the chad won't fuck me is and that whole see i always like my friend groups have always been based around, you know, people like you, people like this cult movie star, <laughs> this uh-huh. cult video store section of people. It's it's where, and there's nothing wrong with gay people that are like this, but it's where being gay is not a sexual thing first. Being gay is the queer part i mean i'm going to use it's the all cultural the, all, thing all the words it's the cultural thing first yeah before i'm a gay man that fucks gay men i'm a gay man that likes tammy faye baker it's, oh, i so you agree know? and it's like, like that's, ah. that's where my my interests are not with the sexual act. i mean i'm also i'm also you know i'm not a very sexual person you know uh-huh. for multiple reasons i i hate I hate gay gay men and gay sex. Um, (laughs) But I'm not a sexual person anymore. I used to be a big whore. But, Uh you know, it was always, it was always, it was always about like the weird and the true, the true like queerness. Mm -hmm. I remember me when I'm growing up, 12 years older than you, queer meant weird it was it was a kind of gay person that was more weird now it means all these other fucking things and i don't fucking care and (laughs) use it every month but i just like it's hard for me to like change change the language anyway i don't want to digress on identity politics but um fun fact (laughs) give me one new line cinema because new line cinema had ordered uh Torch Song trilogy to be um, made, and they gave Harvey Firestein sort of free reign to make whatever he wanted to make, and they were not really down his neck. And that's because New Line Cinema was known as this like B movie company that made like weird horror movies and B movies and Freddy Krueger movies. Yeah, yeah. Polyester. Uh-huh. And when Torch Song trilogy was being filmed in the same studio. Hairspray was also being filmed because that was also a New Line Studio movie. Amazing. And it is funny that Harvey Firestein's first movie that he was making was in the next studio over from the next chapter of Harvey Firestein's, you know, butterfly story where he would play Edna Turnblatt. You know, he would take over for Divine as Edna Turnblatt in the incredibly successful Hairspray musical. Yeah. And it's just so moving to me too. Can you like even imagine like all of this happening like in the same fucking building? Whereas like now in the current like cultural sludge, like this happens 
once every 20 years and then it vanishes forever and we have to deal with like crap like lena denham girls is the last gay representation that i really care about and was like you got it everything else is is like such shit but then here's the fucking 80s and there are multiple homosexual pictures that are extremely successful fascinating idiosyncratic have uh, glistening worldviews that empower the viewer in new and unfamiliar ways and this was happening in the same warehouse and they were out the problem the not the problem the 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 stunning part about this is is john waters and harvey firestein were out directors and writers and unapologetically gay and gayness was a part of their storytelling and Mm -hmm. that is who my idols have always been my idols have always been the people that have been out and non straight acting because you know because another thing with torch song trilogy as a young gay person it was it was that i was seeing someone that was also just like gay Mm. and like just like very gay and usually the people that were the most gay acting were the people on these shows and sitcoms where their sexuality was not talked about but they were the most flamboyant character like like the guy on like designing women or something whereas like somebody like a harvey firestein is like no i'm gay i'm in a gay relationship and i'm a faggot like i'm in a gay relationship and i'm a faggot you know like that was another Another layer, I think, to my love affair with Harvey. Yeah, Fires. and the whole movie like really pierces every single layer of his outwardly projected persona. It has, you know, him being flamboyant, Miss Flaming Queen on the runway with the mascara, all the whole picture, and terrible then, makeup. Oh, the worst! It's makeup. so bad, and it made me so happy when you yeah. watch him like just like strut out in the worst wig I've ever seen. The worst makeup. I felt joy. Drag queens should not be pretty. Yeah. That's what that, that that was the end of drag. Yeah. That was drag. The the best drag is the old school ones when it's like, you know, even old school by saying like a Sharon needles, that's an old school aesthetic. Mm -hmm. Like that's um, when I say an old school aesthetic, I mean, that's a non- cookie cutter version of what drag is. Now I feel like a lot of the drag performers that go on something like a drag race, uh. they're all 12 years old when they first saw uh, Aquaria. So their <laughs> drag knowledge is I was 12 years old and I saw this old lady Aquaria. <laughs> you know, now they're like these oh my god, looking fillers at, at 18, like glamorous. Like, like two beautiful Georges and like <laughs> a Minty Minty or whatever the fuck oh, her name whatever. is. Like, oh, it's like, why does no one realize that like drag is supposed to make you like cringe? Like you're supposed to be like afraid or like quivering and like in awe at the terror. If you, said to, like, if you said like, hey, do you know who um Virginia Han and Birth of a Nation is? They would have like no idea who Harvey Firestein is at all. They'd be like, that's racist. But it also, okay, it also should be noted and another amazing part of Torch Song Trilogy is when he was making the movie, he added all of these other drag queens into it, like the drag queen named Birth of a Nation, played Mm -hmm. by a drag artist named uh, Charles Pierce. And he was like, I'm just gonna write, I need to write this drag character because Charles Pierce is so old and there's no documentation of him as an incredibly 
prominent and successful drag queen. There's no documentation. There's no, that's not on film. There was no YouTube. Mm. There's no cameras. So that's why he put those other drag, you know, there's that drag queen that like, you know, she gives the, she's like a, like Betty Davis. She does like Betty mm-hmm. Davis drag. That's this drag artist, Charles Pierce. And he did that specifically. He wrote that part for him just so it could be documented that this person. Oh, and the movie gives him existed. so much loving attention and these like big, like wagging tongue, like licks uh-huh. up these busted drag queens. So look, yep. oh, but it's so beautiful. It's like, it's this so is beautiful. what it's all about. So listen, I bought, I had to buy, um, cause I had the DVD and then I moved a couple of weeks, a, a couple of months ago. Uh-huh. And then somewhere it, 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 it the DVD got lost. So when you asked me to do this, I was like, oh, I I, I need to get a, a new DVD because it's not streaming anywhere, which is Mm-mm. fucking crazy. So I had to buy it on eBay and it was really expensive, by the way. Oh, it was God. like, it was real. It was like $70. It was a <gasps> really expensive DVD. I like used I, like a janky website to watch it. Okay, so you should give them the link so everyone could watch this. Yeah. Because I, 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 I was a little sad that it was really hard to get the DVD. It was expensive and it really is not streaming anywhere. So you should definitely give this link because it's one of the most formative movies of mine and your lives. And I think that um, your gay knowledge. They need this movie. movie. People really need it. This is like yeah. such a holistic, like answer therapy session, like brutal examination of the heart. Um, I was like in and tears. It's fucking funny. It's, it's funny. funny. Oh my god, yeah. Harvey Weinstein. I see. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna a lot happen. Of people did that during the Weinstein thing. Harvey Firestein got a lot of hate mail because people got confused with Harvey Firestein. <laughs> oh god, Harvey Firestein. Firestein is a comedic genius. These monologues that he gives at the beginning of the film putting on his wretched makeup and saying, you know, I've had more men that are named in the Bible, both Old Testament and new. <laughs> Girl. And he tells that story, right. He, it's, it's an 11, it's like an 11 minute monologue. And he's like, um, you know, and then the, the next is the hopeless. Those are the ones you want to watch your food stamps around. He just has all these like, <laughs> and these like and instant bites. Like it's the just like, it's so good. Yes. So, I'll put a link in the Patreon because uh, everyone needs to watch Harvey and his on-screen mother uh, go through the entire panic of uh, gay identity. My mom and I have had this exact conversation about 30 times. And like, if people could have seen this movie at age 14 and been raised on this, then the world would be a lot more peaceful and less self-loathing. And one last thing about uh, about the mother, because the mother is played geniusly by Anne Bancroft. Mm. But I heard that at the New York Public Library Archive, they have, and I need to find out where to find this because uh, I, I need it. They have the original play on tape starring Estelle Getty. So I need to go to, you the, need to any get, get over there. If you, any listeners want to like go on a date with me to go see this? Paul Kupo, let's go. Act bad. You can, do, you can do all the work for me and figure out how we can just go there and I can watch it. We could have the best time. Once upon a time, in olden days, I spent my afternoons at Dejeuner, eating all day. I got so long. 
large as a trunk that my husband the monk took off like a fuck <laughs> and left me all alone what bad luck my life sucks We have to know your listeners have to know going into this if they have no experience with who I am. Like John Waters is my touchstone. John uh-huh. Waters is my he's my everything. I I knew who I was when I got into John Waters movies at a young age. I had never seen anything that, you know, shocking and subversive and mm-hmm. edgy and artistic and creative. I had never seen anything like that. And it shook me to my core at a very young age and has played a huge influence in basically everything I've done, whether yeah. it's fashion or podcasting. It's like, I always carry with me a little bit of John Waters, but, but I did notice some, some things that we can talk about. I did notice some things about being an adult viewing uh-huh. John Waters. But no, I definitely noticed these things too. And I have the same experience, which is like, uh, when I was in high school, like I really wanted to like love John Waters, and my love of it comes from Hairspray, uh, mm-hmm. which we Incredible. saw. Yeah, my mother and I saw the musical adaptation in theaters three times, and I was riveted. Amanda Bynes. Oh, that's your your first yep. was the musical movie. Yes, that's right. Wow. And so I got independently curious and started like looking into things. It was like a Wow. Seventh grade of, of I am middle school. shocked. I know. It's horrible, but that's how no, it happened. It's good. Listen, you get you everyone finds their own path, but I'm shocked because mine was 
the movie mm-hmm. that was my first thing that was the first time I saw Divine. I didn't know who I didn't know who Divine was. I just remember this very wholesome movie that would be on TV called Spray, and I didn't I didn't realize later in my you know fucked up teen years when I discovered Pink Flamingos, I didn't even realize that was the same director or actor that was in that like very family friendly movie Hairspray. Oh yeah, like a got that correlation. Hairspray was so like good natured and friendly that like my like uh, very like Baptist like we are not you know into the homosexual stuff. They would watch it and it's like it's like the the most uh, productive like race relations movie ever made. Um, it's like so sweet and oh yeah. Me going backwards because the musical is even sweeter and like saccharine than the you know than the film. Going back and like starting from the very beginning, like multiple maniacs, like uh, which I watched like a burnt VHS tape of that a friend had, uh, like (laughs) pretty. And they're also like they're also weirdly unwatchable. Oh yeah, like multiple maniacs. (laughs) I find that almost unwatchable. I find Desperate Living very unwatchable and. Even polyester, which is an incredible movie, I was like, oh, this is a kid's movie. I'm but- too much of an adult to watch this. When I was a kid, this was like watching a real life cartoon come to life. I mean, and as an adult, I'm like, oh, this is a kid's movie. No one talks like a human being. Everyone is like right. speaking in like bizarre clipped one-liners. The sets are anti-real. No one is acting like they should. The editing is shocking. Like it is uniquely brutal to watch because- It's uh, in Technicolor, even though Technicolor is like 40 years before. It's like- Yeah. Everyone has like very weird tan gray skin tones and the walls are like blue. Like the walls are like so bright. Right, it's like a cartoon come to life. But it's okay, crazy. so polyester was a three three hundred thousand dollar budget, and it was filmed. God, when was it? I, I think nineteen eighty one is when it came out. So they must have filmed in nineteen eighty. Okay, and it's a it's it's what John Waters calls a smell exploitation movie because <laughs> it was filmed in Odorama. So when you saw the movie in theaters, you got a a card with uh I think I don't know if it was ten or eight ten scratch and sniff uh odors and it's about um it's it's john waters says it in such a good way it's a it i can't find it it's it, it it's about an alcoholic housewife terrorized by the smells of the world yes that's exactly it it's about a manic housewife who is um put through like honestly like lars von trier torture for yeah, the ringer. The She's put through the, the ringer by every single person around her. All of her kids, her husband, and um, her and love her, interest, her like, love interest. Every uh, the local Christian community throwing tomatoes at her. Like she is just like Joan of Arc in this movie, and um, you know, divine. The, the it's so annoying having to explain the these first things, time like, divine. Because Divine was known as being a very shocking, extreme, extreme makeup. She eats shit. She murders. She injects. She injects mascara. She she gets the electric chair. And this was the first time John Waters was asked by New Line to make a quote unquote family commercial film, yeah, like a commercial movie. So he wrote this story where Divine is um, 
a mother. I, I, he, I think he tried to base it on like a father's knows a father knows best sort of very family friendly movie. And, and it opens up where uh, I think it's Bill Murray singing polyester and it's written by Chris Stein and Deborah Harry. And, you know, it zooms into the house and you see um, what's her name? Francine. Francine, Francine Fishpaw. Francine Fishpaw. <laughs> with John Waters is the king of um, names with where, where the last name and the first name are the same first letter. What is yeah. that called? Is that uh, called alliteration. Something? Alliteration names. And they're always like incredible. Like Francine Fishpaw. Her mother's name is Sandra Sullivan. Like just these, these incredible names. Anyway, so the movie opens up with Divine um, being the most housewifey like soft and cunt yes that you could possibly be soft and supple as she's doing her makeup in the mirror spraying deodorant she's like and it's just it's so to me it's like it's like the epitome of womanhood and femininity and and it's everything has this beautiful soft focus there's like window light coming in so like a shag carpet and and then she instantly she she weighs herself and it's you know the the scale goes crazy and she kicks it to the side and that's <laughs> sort of when um the world attacking her starts yes because uh in the course of the movie uh her daughter is a slut fucking a bad boy who uh, gets uh, knocked up uh and uh she induces a miscarriage out of uh youthful fervor uh, her son is the infamous baltimore, baltimore foot stomper yes who, who runs so around super hot oh god he's the so hot so hot so they found that kid in a bar in the lower east side that's no yeah he was just he was just at a bar in the lower east side John Waters was there with with Mink Soul and they got him and everyone was in love with this guy on set. They were like, oh my God, this guy is so weird. He was like, he went from a bar to being like a, a starring role in the movie. Everyone was in love with him. And that was actually based on a real foot stomper. That was based on a real criminal in Baltimore. Which is like the grossest, like most perverse crime you could imagine. Um, Just go up to him and stomp on their feet. Like, yeah. And that's where you get your kicks. And um, the movie has this quality where every single time it cuts to him, it has like this like warbling, like frightened close up soundtrack. Uh-huh. And it's like zooming into the face. It's like so gross as he's like, what is he like snorting all the time in this movie? His name is Angel- Dexter. I think he's doing poppers. It's like poppers and angel dust and like house chemicals. Oh, right. He he says when he gets out of prison, he's like, I'm not on angel dust anymore because he goes to prison. Yeah. Spoiler alert, he goes to prison. <laughs> Uh, and then the husband of the family is cheating on her with a secretary of the porn theater that he runs. Uh, and she is just berated by the world. Played and- by Mink's soul. And and, oh, yeah. and what John Waters tried to do in this movie was he, he wanted all of... He calls all of the casts of his movies that have been with him since the, the Dreamlanders. So he wanted all of the Dreamlanders to play against their type. So he had Divine play the, the homely housewife. He had Minxel play like the sex kitten. He had uh, Mary Vivian Pierce play the nun. You know, he had uh, he had Edith Massey play, you know, a rich debutante instead yes. of, you know, a destructive like thrift store owner. Egg that she is. creature. <laughs> right. He had her play like a debutante. So he tried to have everyone play out of their type. 
And um, the result of it was a movie that actually was considered a commercial success at the time. Mm. I mean, not hard on a $300,000 budget. I mean, that's what got him to make another movie like Hairspray was, you know, the commercial success of this movie. But the movie was a commercial success because he had he had um, asked a very old actor, um, not old age wise, but old for, just from a different generation. Uh, it was like a 1950s um, star, like a superstar male heartthrob mm-hmm. actor. He was he was the boy next door version of the James Dean. He was under contract at Warner Brothers Studio. We could talk about Tab Hunter, I because I want to go into Tab Hunter later oh yeah but he he had gotten tab hunter to play the love interest um named todd todd tomorrow Mm. oh yeah todd tomorrow and that's francine's love interest after you know the husband (laughs) after the husband leaves her you think that maybe she's finally going to um she's finally gonna you know something good's gonna happen to her so she meets this incredibly hot guy todd tomorrow who's a heartthrob and they have this glorious love affair and we only find out later that he's like secretly dating divine mom (laughs) and they're like planning on like killing francine and you know there's a really incredible scene where he takes her to like um like a, a drive-in movie theater and then he like disappears in the back and he's like doing cocaine with divine's mother and yes and divine's mother's like i wrote this down because she goes oh nose candy dynamite and it's just like a huge <laughs> mountain of cocaine they're like do cocaine and they're like you know they're like planning francine's demise absolutely i mean the texture of this movie is so fascinating because um it is so intense in its torture of Francine and Divine is going a house down for the acting. Like she mm-hmm. is screaming, moaning, Scream, chugging falling. alcohol, picking at her pussy, like rolling scowl, around. Oh, down the face. And it is, you know, even though this movie is like trash, you know, as John Waters loves to say, it is actually like painful to sit through. It's like um like Darren Aronofsky's mother. Absolutely. She is the she is she's the original mother. And she's 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 one of the greatest tragic figures in cinematic history. Oh, it's because true. she also never it never it never gets better, right? No. I don't think the movie like the movie never gets better. I think everyone everyone dies at the end, but whatever. It, it keeps like setting up like uh, expectations that things are improving and she's going to get her beautiful moral fantasy when she, uh, her child is reformed into a hippie and the other one comes back from prison and decides to be a uh, artist. An artist, a foot artist. A where foot he artist. Portraits of feet and then um, the daughter. <laughs> what's what's the daughter's name? Oh, it's something funny. Lulu. Lulu. Lulu, yeah. And they all do this every time everyone's uh, one of the best parts about the movie is every time any girl is exhibiting bad behavior, whether it's Lulu, whether it's Mink Soul, or whether it's Francine's mother, they all do this shimmy. The shimmy. Like, I'm gonna, uh, I, you know, like everything is this shake where they talk about, you know, like that's where they flaunt their bad behavior with this shimmy. I mean, no one could see me do it, but it's like you pretty incredible. It. Like it's a pretty incredible. Um, character you know touch that he gives to 
these three characters exhibiting bad behavior is oh, when yeah. you're like, do your bad girl shimmy, you know? Because I, I love that both like John Waters and David Lynch have like kind of like the same impulse towards the 50s where it's like, oh, like it was this great time of moral purity that was secretly mm-hmm. disgusting and evil. And they both do like with their female characters behaving poorly, they do the shake and the shimmy, which uh-huh. apparently is like some like uh, long stretching cultural archetype of female evil, which is just the shimmy. <laughs> I love well, it's it. it's like... You know, that's when John Waters was growing up. So everything, when he goes back to the most defiant or the most, um, like his source of inspiration usually comes from these sources from the 50s. Mm-hmm. And I, I, you know, my friend Cody Critchlow, he's in that band Shun. And we talk a lot about, he he, you know, he directs all of his videos and, and you know, he has a, he has a band anyway. Shun, look it up. But we always talk about how everything we do always manages to go back to like being really 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No matter what, our core aesthetic goes back to being like so eight. Like, look at the room. Like, I have per- like my legs are per- like I'm very 80s behind me right now. No one can see this. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's just like, like, that's my core. At the core, I'm 80s. And I feel like that's because, you know, that's when I was, you know, a very young child. So that's like my happiest memories, like uh-huh. first memories of the world is the 80s. So I feel like that's why John Waters always goes back to like the 50s, no matter, you know, polyester with the sh- that bad girl shimmy. Uh, yeah. Hairspray, which is like all about the 50s. Like that's. That's his uh, comfort zone artistically. Yeah. And it's like, um, there's something beautiful about it because he's like changed to his um, like overgrown rebellion towards like 50s culture. But the thing is, is that like, um, unfortunately, culture always goes back to the people in this movie who are standing outside of uh, Fishbur- Fishpaw's house, throwing tomatoes at her for an X-rated movie. And the mm-hmm. feedback loop, you know, John Waters has proved right about this there's always going to be moral scolds like throwing shit at you for being libered, like liberated and mm-hmm. uh, a strange person. And it's like, it actually is an everlasting truth. No matter how like corny it seems that he's tied to it, it's real. It's real. And, and it's actually so real that most of the neighbors when they were filming were appalled and disgusted by whatever was happening on like, the movie set next to their houses. And Mm -hmm. there was like a lot of picketing and a lot of petitioning to have them stop filming. Cause you know, there was like divine and the foot stomper and you know, the punk rock Bobo, the boyfriend and you know, (laughs) each like the neighbors mimicked what was really going on in that movie where, you know, there's, there's also the first, the first um, twinkling of like paparazzi and like sending out news crews to someone's houses because like in you know the in the first in the first scene, uh, Wilbur Wilbur the husband is you know he he calls the news about his dirty movie theater and uh-huh. you know he's like yeah I have a dirty movie theater. like sent like send the film crew like send send the mini cam and Divine just goes oh mini cam like. <laughs> And all that meant was just like a handheld camera, but the shock and like the shock of a mini cam not confined to the studio, a mini cam. But I mean, it is evil. 
and John Waters like uh, is so presciently right about this, like uh, especially with stuff like Cecil B. Demented and Serial Mom, where he like drove even further like into the horror of constant attention, reality TV, paparazzi. Like mm-hmm. it's amazing that he first saw like the great like malevolence of it. What's your in favorite drama? So now you have now you have a sort of a full. I I, t- I take it you've have you have a full history and you've seen all of it. I've seen everything. What- what what speaks to you the most? Well, my favorite is is going to be the one I'm going to talk about at the end of this little trilogy of John Waters episodes I'm plotting, and it's a dirty shame. That's your favorite. It's my favorite. That's your favorite. I'm shocked. I'm shocked. I think it's his like That's most my least like it's his most highbrow art movie, and it's disgusting. That's it, my least favorite. That's wow, amazing. I'm so shocked. No, but I, I mean, there's no wrong answer. My favorite is. My favorite is Female Trouble. Oh, that's a great answer. And then after, like my, I I like to break them up into two categories, old school and new school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Old school is Female Trouble. And my favorite new school is fucking Serial Mom. I mean, Serial Mom is perfect. It's Serial Mom is like, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't get better. I mean, if I had to choose one movie, it would probably be fucking Serial Mom. I just wish I could listen to Kathleen Turner on the phone talking about sucking dick for the rest of my life. In fucking credible. And I think if I my least favorite, I would probably say, and it's cry, probably probably Crybaby. Oh, I forgot about Crybaby. That's easily my least favorite. I think that's my least favorite. I actually don't love Desperate Living, to be honest. Oh, I'm talking about Desperate Living next week. Okay. Well, who are you talking I, about it with? I'm curious. I, I'll. It's a secret. I don't Okay, yeah, <laughs> I don't have anyone booked for it yet. I might have to do it by myself. I feel like Desperate Living only because Divine's not in that. Yeah, well, okay. the only thing I love about Let's it is the to, opening scene. Yeah, polyester. But, yeah, polyester. Um, I mean, the title rings true. Like you said, it's about a, a woman being assaulted by the stench of the universe. And there's that great quote uh, from the man who gives the instructional video about how to use the Odorama card. And he says, because sometimes life just stinks. Stinks. Mm-hmm. But this movie, despite its like complete terrorization of its subjects, like, don't you think it does make life seem beautiful at the end of it all? Oh, absolutely. Because it it shows it's still like a a slice of life. Everything comes back to these like um, what is that called? Like a nuclear family, mm-hmm. nuclear family values. Yeah. You know, it comes back to well, maybe not the son. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe not the father. Well, by the end of the movie, um, they are all standing together. And okay, I've noticed this on different versions I've watched. Um, I think on the Blu-ray, uh, it ends with a much better cut, which is like twenty seconds of silence of them standing in front of the house before the credits roll. Yes. Okay. That is that is how it happens on the Amazon stream of it as well. Because I thought that I thought that the stream froze, and I'm like. I'm like, wait, we're just like, like, did my TV freeze? So it, it must be the same. Oh, I think that's the most existential, and- horrifying <laughs> shot of his whole uh-huh. career because it just stays very put. tar. That was very tar. It's very them. tar. And it's like bright purple lighting. And you're like, you're just spellbound. What is to be made of it? You see the aesthetic? I have see? one aesthetic. Yes. 
<laughs> I remember when I first watched it and it just stays there for a whole fucking minute, basically. And you're just left with the shrapnel of um the American nuclear family blown up, reassembled with a fat drag queen at the oh, center I of love it. That. Left oh, with God. the shrapnel of it. I love that. That's such a good way to put it. And it's beautiful. So it was, so it was starring um, you know, this actor, Tab Hunter, mm-hmm. who was the 1950s heartthrob that he was so beautiful because there's an amazing documentary called tab hunter confidential that he made in 2000 i believe he made it in 2000 god he died in 2018 so i think he probably made it he probably made it in like 2015 and he Mm -hmm. died right after where he finally comes out of the closet because tab hunter in real life was uh very gay but he was closeted most of his life including when he was in um, polyester. Yeah. So the lore of getting Tab Hunter was he was this 1950s heartthrob who was so beautiful he had to leave high school and join the Coast Guard. And <laughs> he eventually, he literally couldn't walk down the halls of his school because he was so beautiful. Like yeah. the girls would not leave him alone, so he had to drop out of school. So he joined the Coast Guard. Then he got kicked out of the Coast Guard because he they re- they found out later before they were going to ship him off that he was under 16. So they kicked him out of the Coast Guard. So he moved directly to Hollywood where he did a lot of odd jobs. And then he ultimately worked at a horse ranch. And then he, you know, a very a famous Hollywood movie star did a shoot at the horse ranch and was like, oh my God, you're so beautiful. You need to meet my agent. And this very famous Hollywood agent, I don't know his name, discovered Tab Hunter mm-hmm. and he became, you know, uh, an employee of Warner Brothers, and he was in multiple movies. He dated Natalie Wood and oh. Debbie Reynolds, but he was, you know, he was he was he was he was a homosexual, and the the studio sort of protected him whenever you know Hollywood Confidential would want to put out these stories. You know, he dated Anthony Perkins for years, like <gasps> the Psycho, like that was his boy. God, so hot! You need to watch this documentary called Tap Hunter Confidential. I gotta watch it, yeah. Because then Anthony Perkins fucks him over and takes a movie role from him. So they break up and it's like <sighs> Tab Hunter thinks Tab Hunter thinks that he is like, you know, he's he's a huge movie star and he thinks he could maybe do a little better without Warner Brothers, which was a very big mistake of his. So he bought himself out of his Warner Brothers contract and then his entire career went on this decline where he was doing horror movies and he was doing um dinner theater and then john waters you know contacted him and he contacted him directly he didn't have an agent to be in this movie and tab hunter said yes and john waters says something funny where it's like he paid tab hunter more than he's ever paid an act an actor and tab hunter accepted less money than he's ever accepted as an actor to be in polyester. Yeah. And there's something really special about his presence in the movie because he has that old Hollywood sort of majestic and regal, like, oh God, when when he's on screen, you can just like feel the decades of like film history that like culminated in him. Yeah, he's he's stunning. And the sheer like 1981 like will to power of john waters making him like slop and gag and lick up on divine in front of a women in love uh-huh. fireplace on a shag 
carpet is incredible. And then one of the movie stills, that beautiful still of, of him and Grace <gasps> holding Dumai, her. Is the cover of the Criterion. It's Polyester. gorgeous. And don't you think that this is like completely like brilliant, like reorganization of reality? Like it's so hard to understate how difficult it was to make these kind of movies. And like the fact that this was a commercial <laughs> effort, like that they really put this out there and it, it has a... And that's a lot of credit to New Line Cinemas who was I doing know. polyester and torch song trilogies and hairspray and all of these like um, queer, I mean, there's no other way to call it, queer, queer movies at, at a time when no one else was doing things like that. And then actually Tab Hunter, because he had met Divine and they had such a good relationship, after polyester, Tab pitched a movie to Fox with Divine called Lust in the Dust, which is a which was a Western with Tab Hunter, Divine, and Lainey Kazan. Oh, you know, you need to watch no. it. No. Oh, it's in it's incredible. And it's Divine and Dragon. It's a it's a Western. And Tab Hunter pitched this to Fox. Fox said no, but the person they pitched it to was so into this idea. He won, started dating Tab Hunter, and they were together for 30 years. <laughs> he left Fox and he produced this movie. God, I gotta watch it. You have to watch Listen to Us. It's me. No, I'm going to watch it today. I haven't even heard of it before. Oh, my God. It's so good. God. Yeah, it's good. I just, it's so exciting to me to see people make these, like, nasty images. And it's like, this is the, um, it's simultaneously the exterior of the drag queen's life, which is the endless am amounts of tumultuous horror maxed with the interior world of the drag queen which is the lush purple lit alcoholic shag uh -huh. carpet fantasy making out with tab hunter and um the product which is the middle meeting of those two things is the truest like drag film i have ever seen this is like it's me it's a movie about me it's all about me <laughs> <laughs> like this is a movie about the one time i gave like a really hot like personal trainer a blowjob for a few days in nagoya and then like it's the reality of like me and you may need to change your hair beard. color. You may need to try to get a divine in polyester wig, shitty black, like, ugly, ratty, ratty wig. <laughs> yeah, you may need you may need to go here because my blonde wig, my little bob, that's like my signature, has been through like so much semen and is she like just alcohol. One? She's just one wig. Oh, she is one $30 wig that I have been running into the ground for three years. And every time I put it on, I'm like, oh, this is the last time. She's so dead. And then, like, if I wash it, it'll work. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Ugh. gotta get a gimmick. Have you ever seen Gypsy? Yeah, of course. Okay, so jo John Waters, when he uh, was making this, he was thinking about uh, the stripper song, Gotta Get a Gimmick. Mm-hmm. And he references that and like in Hollywood, that's that's what basically what New Line told him. He can make whatever he wants if he first makes, you know, this like homogenized family, you know, family digestible movie. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny because I think it is one of his most digestible movies, and yet it's like still unwatchably like ridiculous. Um, like it's so uniquely it's bad. For, it's good for. I'm so glad that I saw this when I was a kid because it, it is a. It's a. It it reads as a kid movie. I mean, I'm not sure if people in Baltimore just like sound like this because it could also be Can't like imagine. 
but I think that they do. I think Baltimore has a very specific accent that's like outside of every, you know. It's just like they're always tip. talking like they're saying a line. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. And I love which is why I'm I talk afraid, like that too, but which is why I'm afraid that John Waters making movies in this era. I'm afraid that if John Waters makes another movie that it's going to bomb like they have been doing in in the recent years. But I'm just afraid that like, to me, it's like John Waters never has to, he never, I, I don't really need him to ever make a movie again. To yeah. me, he's already made the most perfect, the most perfect movies I could I could even imagine existing in the world. I don't need him to make another movie. I need him to work on his art and his speaking and talking about this and 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 maybe moving into another medium. So I'm like a little afraid for him to make a new movie because I, I I'm just so scared of my idols delving into you know like TikTok themes or neo. Oh, yeah. I'm just so afraid of like. I, I don't want, like, what if he made a, you know, an orange Cheeto joke about Donald Trump? Like, I'm just so afraid because uh -huh. oh. I'm watching all of my idols do this. Like, a, like Bette Midler is so cringe and like. Well, I've heard just, privately that oh. he's like really like out there to, you know, the not so friendly side of things. And he's like, the reason that he always like when he does his public speaking events, he's like rehashing the same things over and over again. Like he like is a tape recorder. It's because he knows uh -huh. if he goes off script, it's over oh you canceled oh uh, yeah i mean that oh, was something uh, i thought refreshing about his appearance on red scare which okay you were like there weren't you yeah i was front row crying the whole time yeah i'd be i would be fucking emotional but it's like yeah. you know despite the fact that red scare is like the best like criticism of like contemporary political culture that's uh you know come out of this era of you know yeah. art and podcasting and everything the conversation was like never really about that yeah no not at all because because he I don't think he, exactly. I don't think he goes there. And I'm curious why. I'm curious if it's because he could, I mean, if I'm like, I got mad thinking about it. I'm like, like if, like if he were to be canceled in a 2022 sense, no, not even 2022, because canceling is over. If he were to be canceled in a 2021 sense, I would be like, protesting in the street like like breaking down doors of someone tweeting about him and like murdering them oh, like, God, no, i like, would literally i would like literally kill someone over john Waters, it would be like it would be like bad it would be like that you don't touch that but yes i i i, I do think there probably is because he's the king of can like he was canceled by variety in 19 hmm. you know seven like the, in 1904 there's no, more, there's no one more canceled than john yeah. Waters, and I, I bet there probably is something nice about sitting it out. Like, I don't know a better mm -hmm. way to sitting well, this one out. Like, I think my, my prayer is that because he doesn't need to fight so much. He's already fought so much that yeah. I think that it's our duty as dreamlanders. It's our duty as <laughs> yes. to keep the dream alive and to, you know, defend the holy scripture mm -hmm. you know as much as we can but my, my prayer is that if because he did you know get that movie deal signed and he's making a new film i have a idea that uh 
because he is so like in his element and he like is just capable of whatever he wants to do i think he is going to get the money and he is going to make his most undigestible wretched movie ever and it's like you know his most recent stuff like I think A Dirty Shame is actually the most vulgar film ever made. Like, I'm convinced of this. It's disgusting. It's inappropriate. Uh, no, it, it's, it's, yes, it is. I need to rewatch this. Now that you said that, I need to rewatch that. I mean, it has, like, fucking squirrels, like, CGI squirrels banging. And it's so, like, it's, like, gross and crass on such a unique level. I mean, like, but what I was going to say is, like, his most recent, like, New Age stuff is, like, you know, it's friendly for the most part. But I think that when he does something now, I think it's going to be repulsive well it should be so so i listened to uh the movie that's gonna come out liar mouth i listened to that audiobook like the huh. day it came out and it's about a luggage it's about a, a baggage a, a, a luggage thief who goes to airports and steals luggage oh, you know me, that's what he's adapting for the film yes that's gonna be the film so i've been working on something with uh Alyssa bennett and lena and we're for something for because we're gonna get in basically we're gonna get in the movie yeah like you have to we're, we're gonna like fit we're gonna like we're like in the movie like spo- like i'm i'm in that movie no and girl i don't know i don't know how i don't know what what does ariel say i don't know when i don't know how but i know something's <laughs> starting i'm getting in that fucking movie we need lena in it too she she will we're we're getting in that movie girl lena's got we gotta get her (laughs) this is okay lena dunham in the most offensive john waters movie of all time culture over we're done we can wrap it up lena thanks hair that down the middle god like she was so perfect in like once upon a time in hollywood how could john waters not want her oh my god lena's i mean lena is an incredible incredible that's mother that's mother. Um, so we have now voyaged through some of the most uh, pristinely imagined uh, homosexual universes, completely lost to the vortex of time. How long have you been recording? Oh, my God. It's been a while, honey. So looking back on all of this, I am uh, re-philosophizing the world uh, and creating a new one with this season of my podcast. So uh, right. what should I take out of Torchlight Trilogy and Polyester into the new universe? uh like what philosophy is or what uh yeah what what are we taking out of it whatever you feel okay hold on wait actually hold on holding holding because i think that what you should take out of it there was a really amazing correlation between both of them that i thought was kind of amazing and I don't know where it is. Listen, I think what I think what you should do is no. Hold on. There's a quote. There's a quote that I have for you that is so. I'm ready. waiting with bated breath. Okay, so John Waters, when talking about polyester, says, "I always wanted to be commercial. Making money shouldn't be your first goal. Surprising the world should be, but selling tickets should be second. Exactly. <laughs> Getting Do Patreon you... subscribers should be exactly. second. That's what it is. <laughs> Getting Patreon subscribers should be second. It's like, you want to be commercial, but don't... This is something I learned in art school, too, because I went in art school, mm-hmm. and all the most successful people 
that would come and lecture and talk in art school would always say the same thing that it was when you focus on when you focus on your passion and your direction and your own um what is it like your own your own path and your own goal and if you focus that with interest and love and not fear and hate then money will come mm. but if you if if your goal is if the goal is money in an artistic endeavor you know you're you're in the wrong you're in the wrong business it should be changing the world leaving a message behind making people think and money will come yeah no i think that's exactly right and i mean it doesn't look, it doesn't but it will come eventually if but, you i mean looking at your career it seems to me that you stayed very true to like what makes you excited and interested absolutely i have i really and have look where and, you've and ended up and but this is also why i'm not um more rich i'm not more successful because i can I could have probably easily, I mean, I don't know. I could have worked at Louis Vuitton. I could have worked at Burberry. I could have worked at Givenchy. I could have worked yeah. at all these, but I didn't want to. I wanted to do artistic work. And once Hood by Air sort of, you know, fell, I didn't, the goal wasn't, I wasn't in Hood by Air because I wanted to make fashion. I was in it because I wanted to change the world. I was in it because I wanted to do an artistic expression hmm. that would have some sort of meaning in the world. That's what the goal, everything I've ever worked for has been in some way to influence or change the world. That's always yeah. been the goal. That's always been the objective. And if it doesn't fit into that, then it's... I'm not doing it. So no, I mean, I like, you are so right about this. And it's exactly how I feel. These two films, like, you know, we mentioned with Torch Song Trilogy, like, this is a movie about a gay, lisping, raspy-voiced femme yep. drag queen. Yeah, uh, and a movie and that sound features... familiar? And it features no AIDS. Um, It's a gay melodrama and torture is deliberately minimal even though it yep. features a death from hate crime like the movie is like so infused with uh so hopeful so hopeful and light it's beautiful and polyester a movie about the unending torture of one <laughs> one woman is also a movie that ends with a completely sublime 20 like second shot of just a uh, peace because uh, peace. when you are like completely Purple hazed peace. Yes, purple hazed peace. Like when you can run away from the money instinct and you can just embrace what actually makes you interested and you can create fuck money. this like fuck it, fuck it all. Seriously, fuck everything unless you're like actually like really trying to change the damn world. Uh,